you do not have a Bible, there's a black one in the seat back in front of you. Get to page 892. Uh, you'll join us in Mark 6. We want you there uh, to know that what we're talking about is the word of the Lord and not our opinion, which is ultimately irrelevant. Uh, we're grateful that you're here today. I'm thankful for each and every one of you who's here. Um, while you're turning there, I want to make mention of a few things. First of all, if you're a guest, we're especially uh, just humbled and glad that you're here. We know how hard it is to try something new. And so we really appreciate you being here and... Um, if you could, on the way out, stop by um, the welcome desk. We have a gift for you for coming. Like we, know, we know how big a step this is, and we're, and we're grateful uh, that you trusted us with your morning and pray that, that the Lord will meet you here. Uh, secondly, um, we, we had a new members class a couple weeks ago, and we want to celebrate um, the people who, who joined us up, joined up with us as covenant members. Uh, we put their names on the screen: Caleb Beaumont, um, Matthew and Pacey Price, Christy Adams, Isaac Williams, uh, Ryan and Bobby Joe. If, if any of you are here, would you please stand uh, for us this morning in church? Can we welcome them uh, as new members of FBN? Awesome. You guys have a seat, and, and uh, Matthew and Pacey and Ryan and Bobby Joe are, are all recent baptisms we've had, so we're excited, doubly excited about what the Lord is doing in their life, and so if you see them today, uh, make sure you welcome them and greet them and uh, thank them for, uh, for just being a part of this place. Uh, a couple other things before we jump into Mark 6. Uh, there's some uh, baby bottles on the, on the table in the back there. Those are a fundraiser uh, that we're be, we agreed to be a part of for Crisis Pregnancy Center. Uh, the idea is that those are available to you from Mother's Day to Father's Day. Uh, to take and uh, fill with your loose change. And when you fill it back, fill it, bring it back to us and we'll get them uh, to Christ's Pregnancy Center. And through this, like all, a whole bunch of different churches in Terre Haute do this and they actually raise quite a bit of money for their ministry. And so if you haven't grabbed uh, one or two of those, please do that on your way out. And then lastly, uh, I believe this is the last... Uh, Sunday for this uh, semester that we're going to have Rose students with us. Uh, I think graduation is next Sunday, and so I uh, just want to make special mention of them. We're always grateful uh, when college students join us and make us a part of their uh, college experience, and we know, um, know how rare that is, and we're thankful for it, and so I want to make special mention of them. Enjoy your summer. If you're graduating, go with the Lord. We love you. Godspeed, right, wherever he takes you, and uh, we're thankful uh, that you made FBN a part of your experience while you're here. The rest of you, we hope to see you back in September, all right? Uh, for, and then, I haven't forgotten you kids, right? Uh, Vigo County Schools gets out this week. It's going to be a great week for everybody. Uh, summer's finally here, even if it was like 38 degrees this morning, all right? Uh, summer's coming, and so we're, we're going to, the pool, everything is coming with it, and so we're excited about that. Uh, but before we can get to any of that, we've got to get through Mark 6 today, so I'm going to ask you to join me in a word of prayer. So let's pray. Father, we're thankful uh, for what you're doing in our lives. We're thankful for the change of seasons. We're thankful for uh, just the rhythms of your creation and uh, the rhythm of the, of the week that you set up, uh, that once a week your church would gather, um, Lord. And we're thankful for the opportunity to do that corporately, to sing praises to you, to open your word. And we, we know you've already met us in fellowship. You've already met us in the worship of your name. And now we pray that you'll meet us in the teaching of your word. Uh, Lord, may it not return to you void, may it accomplish everything you set forth for it to accomplish this morning, and may you get the glory from it. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, one of the things we as the Parks family like doing, we just enjoy doing, is sitting around a fire. 
Uh, I've always liked it, and my wife has always liked it, even our kids like it. And so a couple years ago, I thought, well, if everybody likes this, I need to create a space in our backyard that we can do this more often. And so I dug out a big circle and put a bunch of gravel down and made a fire pit area, and it was looking really nice. And I thought, man, there's one thing, there's just one touch that would put this over the top, if I could hang string lights around it. Uh, but in order to hang string lights around it, I had to, I had to uh, put poles in the ground. And so I did some research online, tried to figure out some people have done this before, and I found this plan, and I thought, that seems pretty simple, I can do that. And so uh, I went out uh, with post hole diggers, and the goal was to dig down 16 inches, right? Because that would get a nice, firm uh, foundation for the poles. And I picked my spot for the first pole and started digging, and away I went. It was actually going quite well, and I was like, man, this is going faster than I thought thought. And then I got down a little further than one foot, like a 12 to 14 inch area, and everything changed. Because right? in an instant, the ground just became rock hard. Like it didn't matter what I was doing. I'd slam those things down and pulled up and no dirt was coming up. Nothing was happening. And so I tried three different strategies in the face of this. Number one, I decided I'm going to put more effort into it. So I raised the post hole higher and slammed it down harder. And I did this over and over again to the point that my forearms were just so incredibly sore the next day. Nothing changed, right? Still no dirt was coming up. The second strategy I tried was just to get angry, right? And so I just got a little furious and my, my motion was a little more wild and everything. Still nothing. The, the anger didn't help at all. No effectiveness. So then I said, well, let's, let's just try a new strategy. Go to try a new angle and go pick one of the other four spots, all right? And I had to dig. And so I went to each one. And guess what happened 12 to 14 inches down to each one, right? Same exact thing, rock hard ground. So trying harder got me nowhere. Getting angry got me nowhere. Trying it from another angle got me nowhere. None of it resulted in any kind of change whatsoever. The ground remained impenetrable, rock hard, unable to change. And we're going through the book of Mark as a church, and we're going to get to Mark chapter 6 today, and we're going to see a fascinating story of Jesus uh, kind of encountering the same thing, but when it's human hearts. And Mark is really an autobiography. You know, the book of Mark has, has very little of Jesus' actual teachings. It's just a record of where he went and what he did and what he encountered and how he reacted to things. And I think that's incredibly valuable. Because if, if we are actual followers of Jesus, right, which means that we are his apprentices, we're trying to emulate him to do what he did, then we should read books like Mark and take note of how he did things. Right? Take note of how he responded to different situations and, and try to walk in those ways. And there's something that we saw recently in, from Jesus in Mark 4 that uh, on that Sunday, uh, Pastor Adam made mention of it and I thought it was powerful. And then we're going to see it again today. And to see him do it twice in a matter of just a few chapters, I th was, was enough for me to take notice. And it's when this occurs, whenever Jesus encounters really rigid, hard-hearted unbelief, and his reaction to that is probably not what we would guess at first. And I want us to take note of this because of two different reasons, right? We're, number one, we are, as followers of Jesus Christ, called to take his gospel to all nations, right? That's the Great Commission. That's the mission that he's given his people. And so we are to be people of influence, right? We are to point everyone else to faith in Jesus Christ. And, and when we are faithful to that mission, we're going to encounter people who don't agree with us. We're going to encounter people who have genuine questions. We're going to have people who have doubts that they need help working through. And then we're going to encounter a group of people who simply will not believe. It's just a complete non-starter for them, at least on that day and in that season of life. And we need to know how to handle that. And then number two, right, I want us to see the negative effects of unbelief. 
to ask the Lord to seek our hearts and remove any that we have because, yes, even Christians can form a really hard heart to truth and to grace. And so if you've ever wrestled with doubts about your faith and wondered if that makes you a lesser Christian, it doesn't, by the way. If you've ever dealt with difficult people and you're not sure how you would respond as a follower of Jesus or you know this morning that your heart is prone to wander and you're capable of, of getting really rigid and set in your ways and preferences, then I'm, I'm glad you're here. We're going to look at this story in Mark 6 of Jesus visiting his hometown for the second time. So I'm going to invite Roxanne Poe up. She's going to be reading for us Mark chapter 6 verses 1 through 6. And if you're physically capable, would you please stand with her for the reading of God's word this morning. Morning, Roxanne. Good morning. He left there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him, and how are these miracles performed by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Hoses, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his household. He was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. He was going around the villages teaching. Thank you, Roxanne. You guys can have a seat. Please keep your Bibles open there to Mark 6. It's that encounter that we're going to spend our time uh, studying this morning. In, in verse 1 of that passage, right, Mark says he left there. He is Jesus, and he left Capernaum. That's where he was in Mark 5. That's where he healed uh, the lady that uh, had the disease for 12 years and raised Jairus' daughter. So he left there and came to his hometown. Now, his hometown is Nazareth, right? This is where after Jesus was born and they had escaped to Egypt for a little while, uh, they came back and settled in Nazareth. So this is where Jesus grew up, okay? And so he's back in Nazareth in his hometown, and we know from, not from Mark, but from Luke's gospel, that this is not Jesus' first visit to Nazareth in his earthly ministry, right? Uh, this is actually his second visit. And the first one is recorded for us in Luke chapter 4. And based on the timestamps that the different gospel writers give, I read this, morning, this week that the uh, scholars think it was about one year before this visit is when he previously visited Nazareth. And it did not go well. Like, it just didn't go well, right? And what happened in that, Luke tells us, is that he stood up in synagogue on Sabbath day, and they handed him the scrolls, and he opened it to Isaiah 61, and he read Isaiah 61, which is a passage prophesying about what the Messiah will do when he comes, and then he says, this scripture is now fulfilled in your hearing. He's saying, I am the Messiah. And then he goes on from there, uh, and he tells a couple stories from the Old Testament that if we read it from our angle, like just from a you know, 21st century American angle, we might miss the point of them, but nobody in that synagogue did. The point of these stories in the Old Testament is Jesus was saying that as Messiah, he would be extending his grace just as much to the Gentiles as he would the Israelites. And so in his hometown where he grew up, he comes back the first time, he says, I'm the Messiah. Right, that, that little awkward teenager, remember all that stuff? Like, I'm, I'm the Messiah, and part of my ministry is I'm going to extend my grace to the Gentiles just as much as the Israelites. You know how they respond to this? They try to kill him. They're not happy. They literally try to throw him off a cliff and kill him, and the Bible says he worked his way through the crowd and left. And so the fact that he comes back, to me, is quite amazing. Would you go back to a town that tried to kill you last time you were there? But I think this teaches us something about Jesus. Jesus cares about the few just as much as he does the many. 
You may have noticed why Roxanne read. This visit didn't go well either. And that's not shocking, right? Jesus was not stupid. He knew that going in. They tried to kill him last time. He was there. They weren't going to throw a parade for him this time. And so we read of their scoffing. We read of their unbelief. We read about how much fewer miracles he could do in there. But you know what we don't read? Nowhere in there do we read that his teaching didn't reach any of them. Nowhere do we read that someone didn't trust their lives to his grace and his way. And we read in verse 5 that he was able to minister to and heal a few sick people. So if we scale back and look at this from a purely human perspective, we'd likely come to a wrong conclusion. We'd say, Jesus, man, when you're in Capernaum and when you go around these villages in Galilee, wherever you go, there are massive crowds who are coming to you. Right? They're, they're pursuing you. Right? They, they want to hear you teach. They're coming to you for healing. Ministry is booming. And then we look at Nazareth and be like, man, there's no one running out to meet you. There's very few of them that are even excited that you're here. They're, they're listening to your teaching, sure, but they're doing it to looking to see if they can pick apart and accuse you of anything. There's very few of them coming to you for healing. And, and to borrow from last week's sermon, we might say, why bother, Jesus? Like, why would you even go back? It's not a strategic visit. It's not worth your time. It's not worth the investment. They don't want you there. And from a logical, strategic point of view, we'd be right. But from God's perspective, God who is both big enough to handle all the problems of the cosmos and yet also intimately concerned with and interested in the smallest details of my individual life, he has a different perspective. It was worth Jesus coming back in his mind for at least two reasons that I can see from this passage. Number one, he is modeling for his disciples how to carry yourself in hostile places. Now, Roxanne stopped reading in verse 6. We're going to teach on verse 7 next week. You know what happens in verse 7? In verse 7, Jesus sends out the 12. And for the first time, they're going to be sent out on their own, apart from Jesus, to carry on this message. And they need to know before they go, it's not all going to be rosy. Not everybody's going to welcome them. And so what do they need to see? They need to see Jesus model what it's like to face pressure and scrutiny and how you carry yourself in those situations because they're about to face it. Secondly, he goes back because the individual matters to Jesus. Sure, he didn't reach thousands of people with a sermon in Nazareth like he did others. There weren't countless people delivered from illness and suffering, just a few. But do you think it meant any less to those individuals he did connect with? They could admit any less the individuals he did heal or did touch. If you read the book of Revelation in chapters two and three, Jesus addresses seven different churches in that time. And there's a theme that runs through those letters and you pick up on it really quickly. You pick up on the fact that Jesus has a real heart for those who follow him in places that it's not popular. And Jesus knew that there would be individuals in Nazareth who would believe in him when no one else around them was. And they were worthy They were worthy of his time. They were worthy of his investment. They were worthy of his presence and his visit and eventually his sacrifice on the cross. But sadly, they did not make up the majority of the Nazarenes. As we read this passage, what happens is the town people in Nazareth paint for us a very vivid and heartbreaking picture of unbelief. Unbelief is always rigid and inflexible. Now, I think it would be helpful for me to, determine, to define for you what I mean by unbelief. For instance, right, a doubt is, is the questioning of something you believe. 
But a doubt is when you, when you feel like you need to take a second look or ask follow-ups. But in order for there to be doubt, there needs to be a belief first, right? But unbelief is a steadfast refusal to even entertain the idea of believing in something, regardless of what evidence is presented to you. And so it's always marked by moving arguments and and differing standards and inconsistent logic, whatever the person can find to justify not believing in something. And we see this modeled perfectly by the people in Nazareth. Jesus is somehow able to teach in the synagogue, but most of them had made up their minds before he ever opened his mouth and said a word. I want you to listen to the language that they use in verses two and three. It's striking, right? Chapter six, verse two. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. And listen to these questions. Where did this man get these things, they said? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? Those are good questions, but look what happens in verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters here with us? So they were offended by him. And we're going to get to their offense in a second. But did you hear the admissions they made in their first questions? They start by asking, where does he get these things? And then they list the things. Like, how has this wisdom been given to him? This incredible wisdom he's teaching with. Where did he get that? And how are these miracles performed by his hands? We're watching him do this. Do you see the admission of that? They're saying, we're we're hearing with our own ears. We're seeing with our own eyes things that we can't deny. We came and listened to his teaching, and we, we we wanted to pick it apart, and we can't. Everything he said was wise. Everything he said was true, and dare I say it, even captivating. And with our own eyes, we've witnessed him do miracles. And so they can't reject his teaching. They can't reject his ministry. They can't reject his power. But what do they do? They still reject him. Despite all that, they still reject him. And look at the reasons they choose. For First, they take an aim at his job. Wait, isn't this just a carpenter? Now, a carpenter was a respectable trade in that day, but not a typical source you would go to for spiritual wisdom and teaching. It's like, we don't have to listen to him. He's just a carpenter. And then they go to his family. Isn't this the son of Mary? You know what they're saying? We, we know where you come from. We saw you growing up. Like, we, now you want to be the Messiah? And they also ask, isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? Do you remember the last time that we saw Jesus' family in the book of Mark? Turn back a couple pages to Mark 3. Mark 3, verse 20. Jesus enters a house and a crowd gathered around him again, so they are not even able to eat. And look at, look at what verse 21 tells us. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, what? what? He's doing such great work? No, because they said he's out of his mind. Do you know what they're doing here in Nazareth in chapter 6? My guess is saying this. We know your siblings, and we know they don't even believe in you. So why would we? They take aim at his job, they take aim at his family, and then they take aim at his past. That first question, isn't this the son of Mary? That is meant as an insult. A Jewish man would always be referred to as the son of his father, never as the son of his mother. And this is most likely a throwback to the scandal that was surrounding his birth, his, his mother's virgin birth that others wouldn't believe. And they're saying, how can someone whose entire birth and family story be enshrouded in scandal and he come tell us how to live? No, no. And so they can't reject his teaching. They can't reject his truth. They can't reject his power. They can't reject his miracles. And they still reject him. They find a way. 
Instead of belief, instead of surrendering, instead of submission, look again at their reaction. Last half of verse 3 says, they were offended by him. They're offended. Because a heart of unbelief is always offended by the truth. The searching aren't offended by the truth. Doubters aren't offended by the truth. They're looking for it. Skeptics aren't even offended by the truth. They, they, they might not believe they're ever going to find it, but when they do, they're happy for it. But those with the posture of unbelief reject and hate truth. Their reaction to it is visceral and vile and explosive because they will not tolerate it. This is one of the things that you can track. It's like, don't just separate yourself from the Bible. Just track it in human experience, right? When, when you watch people have conversations or even debate, is, is when the truth is on someone's side, they don't get emotional. But when the truth is not on somebody's side, they get angry and louder and yell more. It's the old saying, when you have the facts on your side, pound the facts, and when you don't, pound the table. Because the posture that rejects truth always leads to anger and always leads to offense. And that's not the only byproduct of unbelief. Unbelief is also a barrier to experiencing God's power. It's a fascinating detail that we need to be careful with and make sure we understand in verse 5. Verse 5 says, He, that's Jesus, was not able to do a miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. Now listen, as we seek to understand what, that, what the Bible tells us there in English, we have to be careful because there's a lot of ways that we can get this wrong, and I've heard them all. And it, it will seem like in this section that I'm going to tell you two things, and I'll be talking out of both sides of my mouth, but I promise you, I want to unpack you two things that are not mutually exclusive. And the first is far more important. We have to be clear on this. Number one, we do not control God. We do not control God because that is absolutely key and undeniable in the scriptures because some people will twist texts like verse 5 and, and teach that it means that human faith gives power to God, right? There, there's a group called Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Teachers. They teach that our faith unlocks the power of God. And what happens is they tend to blame people's weak faith for their struggles and they teach if they had more faith, they'd be more blessed by God. And you can always identify them by their standard of having more faith is sending them more money. Now, there, this is a dangerous teaching that must be rejected by all serious followers of Jesus Christ across the planet because it heaps guilt upon the suffering, it brings financial gain to swindlers, it belittles the Lord and his power, and it is completely false and does not align with the scriptures. Our faith and our trust is not so powerful that God is unable to act without it. I mean, if you've been here, just recall the examples of Jesus' ministry in the book of Mark alone. Jesus is constantly healing people who had weak or no faith at all. In Mark 1 and Mark 5, he heals demon-possessed men who, ha- who give no profession of faith before they're healed. Right? And, and the end of last chapter, Mark 5, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Last time I checked, dead people can't have faith. There are many other examples in the Gospels. Martha does not believe that Jesus will raise Lazarus in John 11, and he does it anyways. In Luke 17, Jesus heals 10 different lepers, and only one displays faith in him. In John 5, he heals a crippled man laying by the pool in Bethsaida, and the man doesn't even know Jesus' identity until after he's healed. How can you have faith in someone you don't even know? Listen, we don't control God. 
We cannot stop him from doing what he wants to do. And we need to be clear on this. When he does something awesome and great, he gets the credit, not us. We need to be clear on that. Now, the second thing is this. We can get in his way. We can be a hurdle. When Mark tells us that Jesus could not do a miracle in Nazareth, he's not, he does not mean that their unbelief has somehow sapped Jesus of his divine sovereign power. The rest of the Bible is clear on that. So what does he mean? He means that the setting was not proper for Jesus to reveal his power in such a way, and that wasn't Jesus' fault. That was the fault of the conditions of the human hearts of Nazareth. And it goes back to understanding the purpose of what Jesus' miracles had in the first place. He performed miracles, number one, to confirm the truth that he taught. Number two, to reveal that he, that he was the Messiah, right? Most of these miracles Jesus did, it was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be given this power. So he's verifying his identity as the Messiah. And then number three was always to lead sinners to saving faith. But in Nazareth, what has happened? He's already came to them twice taught them directly twice, and told them he was the Messiah twice. He's already performed miracles in their midst. He's performed countless areas, miracles in the area right around them, and he's already given them more than they would ever need to know to know that he was the Messiah. But the people of Nazareth have, in response to all of that, committed themselves to unbelief. No matter what he showed them, their reaction was unbelief. Their rejection was set in stone. And therefore, miracles are rendered unnecessary. Because there was nothing more for him to do. There's no other trick he could pull to verify his identity that they would be moved by or reconsider their stance. Every single time he revealed more of who he was to them, the harder their hearts got to truth. And if you realize that, you understand it was an act of mercy that he withheld his power from them. Because every miracle he would have displayed, their rejection would have only increased. Every power he showed, their hard, inflexible, rigid stance would have only solidified. And Jesus did not come to make hearts harder to the truth. And so in his love and his grace and his mercy, he withholds his miraculous power. And it's a really sad picture that we see here of this stubborn, steadfast, unrelenting, unchanging, impenetrable unbelief. Sadly, This is not something that occurred in Jesus' day only, is it? We encounter unbelief in our world all the time, and from time to time, it flares up in our own hearts and minds and souls. And so as we think about how we should respond to this today, I want us to consider Jesus' posture and his attitude and and his movements and actions in the face of unbelief. And as we do, there, there are three things that I want to leave you with this morning. The first is simply this. Don't be afraid of your doubts. The, past, the point of today's passage, the point of this sermon, is that unbelief is a real problem. It is a heart condition that I believe only the power of God can break through. And so we should see it as a threat. We should uh, protect ourselves and our, fa- our family as much as we can from it. But we should not conflate unbelief with genuine doubt. Doubts are something that followers of Jesus should feel a freedom to have and to wrestle with and to seek guidance for. It's a part of your journey of maturation and becoming like Jesus. And we get this wrong in the church a lot. We do. We see any kind of doubt as a threat, right? And so then people are, t- are trained to like keep theirs quiet and not talk to anybody about them and, and hide them, right? That's not the way to handle it. 
Yes, there are passages in the Bible that need to be understood. For instance, James 1 says some really hard things about doubt. It's it's not a pleasant passage. But if you look at the context, right, you'll know that James is talking about a very specific type of person that he calls double-minded. And what he's talking about is he's talking about people who need wisdom. And the double-minded person goes to God for wisdom and says, if I don't like what I hear, I'll go to this other source for wisdom. So double-minded. And James is like, that kind of doubt won't get you anything from the Lord. He's not writing about people who are needing or seeking more clarity to a genuine question they have. And so I think it helps us to see how Jesus handled situations like this. For instance, John the Baptist, more than any human being, right, made the boldest claims about who Jesus was in the Gospels. But there's a point in John's life where he's arrested and he's put in jail. And you know what he starts to do? He starts to doubt. He actually starts it out and he sends messengers to Jesus with this question. Jesus, are you really the one? Like, are you actually the Messiah or should I look for somebody else? And Jesus sends John back a message telling him all that Jesus is doing that it was prophesied the Messiah would do, which is a really huge answer saying, yes, John, I'm he. But I want you to think about that. We have John whose entire ministry was to pave the way for Jesus Christ. John, who was the first one to claim that Jesus is the Messiah. John, who was the one that said Jesus is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. John is the one who taught that Jesus, he's unworthy to even untie the strap of Jesus' sandals. John says all these things, and now John's having doubts. Are you really that guy? I mean, I know I told everybody you were, but are you really that guy, Jesus? And when you read the story, does this change the way Jesus felt about John at all? Right after this exchange, Jesus turns to the crowd and says this in Matthew 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one greater than John the Baptist has appeared. Doesn't appear so, does it? Clearly Jesus was not threatened by John's doubts. Jesus did not think less of John for having them. And we can learn from this. If a brother or sister is wrestling with doubt, they should never be seen as lesser and never be treated as second-class Christians. Because to doubt requires faith. A doubt is merely a temporary, short-term question of a belief. And so wrestling with doubt is a sign of faith. Now, that said, they do, doubts are something that need to be handled properly. And, and we need to be honest about this in the church and talk about how to handle them properly. And so let's role play. Right? If someone comes to you and shares with you a doubt that they're having about their faith, right, your response should always be gracious. And the reason why is there will come a time in your life that you have a doubt or you have a question or you need more clarity of something if that hasn't happened to you already. And what you don't need at that moment is beaten up or corrected or threatened. So if somebody comes to you with this, hear them out in full before answering. Pray for them consistently and then join them in their journey. If you've, if you've wrestled with the exact same question and you have answers or you've had the exact same experience the Lord brought you through it, then offer those answers humbly. If you don't, if you haven't, join them in seeking out the truth they're looking for. There's a follower of Christ who has right? and they've spoken to it and you, the, 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 the journey on the other side, both your faith will be stronger for it. But secondly, if you have doubts yourself, don't ignore them. Don't sweep them on the rug. Don't act like you don't have them. Don't, don't put on this posture. Like I would encourage you to share those with someone you trust, but never, ever skip this step. Take your doubts directly to the Lord. Tell him your questions. Tell him your doubts. Tell him your fears. Tell him your confusion. He's not going to be shocked by it because he already knows what you're thinking anyways. 
Then surrender it to him and ask him to help you with it. Ask him to give you the clarity you're seeking. And in that process, remind yourself of two things. Number one, his timeline is not our timeline. He might let you sit with this for a while. God's not afraid of the tension, right? He knows he grows people in tension, right? He might be using this to stretch you. And so the answer that you're seeking, the peace that you're seeking, might not come in an instant when you surrender to him. He might let it sit for a while. So keep giving it to God and trust in his timing. Secondly, while you're waiting for that answer and waiting for that peace, remind yourself of what it is you know to be true. It could be his character. It could be the goodness of God. It could be his cross. It could be his gospel. Replay all the things that God has done for you in your life so that while you are in the season of wrestling with uncertainty, you keep reminding yourself repeatedly of what you know to be certain, and that forms a solid foundation for you. Never, ever, ever keep your doubts from God. Don't give in to shame for having them. That's a part of the process of maturation and sanctification that everybody goes through. Instead, take them to the Lord. Now, unbelief's a whole different animal. The only advice I have for you in unbelief is this. Pray against unbelief. Unbelief is a steadfast refusal to believe something even if you know it to be true. It's a heart condition that is not pretty. And yes, it's seen here in the people of Nazareth, it's seen in non-believers in our world, and it's seen with Christians. We display this. It could be a sin that you know is wrong. You know what the Bible says about that sin, and yet you keep doing it, and you really don't ever repent of it or feel badly about it. There might be a command in the Bible, like, like uh, giving to God in his kingdom, and, and you know what the Bible says about it, and you're still really stingy with the Lord or don't give it all, and it's the knowledge of what you should do isn't the problem. You just don't do it. Or maybe it's a really cherished idol. There's something that you have made way more important than God in your life, and you know it shouldn't be more important than God. It gets way too much of you, but you don't change, and you don't adjust, and you don't repent, and you don't alter your worship, alter your worship of that idol at all. You're just not moved by any conviction over it. That's unbelief. I'm convinced that when things get to that level, there's little that human beings can do. I could give the greatest sermon in the history of the world. I won't. But I could give the greatest sermon in the history of the world and it wouldn't change a thing for you. You could read the greatest book ever written on the topic and you would be unmoved. We could stage an intervention for you and nothing would change. When it gets to the level of hard-hearted unbelief, it is purely a spiritual battle. And so the battle is fought through prayer. Was Jesus say these types only come out by prayer and fasting? The only power that can break down unbelief is the power of God. And so... Pray for your own heart and soul to be protected from it, to be freed from it if you have it, and then pray against this and other people. The other day, my daughter, Gemma, was trying to open a jar in the kitchen, and she couldn't get it. I mean, she tried everything. She tried um, do two different hands, and she was wrestling with it, and she got a, th- a grippy thing out that helped her hold on, and she was twisting it. She even did the, the knife thing on the side to try to help it open, and couldn't get it, and then she called me over and handed me with, with almost no effort at all. I just popped the lid right off, and she was shocked. And I was like, of course, Jim, I'm, I'm incredibly jacked, right? I'm just ripped, right? No, that's not why. Like, despite my relatively doughy state, okay, a grown man has power that a little girl does not. And we know this. And so when there's someone that we know, someone that we love, someone that we care about who's in a state of unbelief, they steadfastly refuse to believe or consider Christ, we need to pass off the jar to the one who can open it. Because we can't. And so we share, and then we pray, and then we leave it to the Lord. 
Have you noticed Jesus modeling this? He goes to the capitalist and he performs an amazing miracle. He frees this man who was possessed by a legion of demons. It's an incredible display of his power. And the way that place responds to him is they're afraid of him and they tell him, get out of here. Two chapters later, he walks into Nazareth the second time, does some miracles, teaches some things they can't even question. And everybody there finds multiple reasons not to believe in him. And so what does he do in both places? He sets up shop and he debates them for days and days and days. And he, he starts a YouTube channel so he can record their arguments and get famous that way. And then he pickets and yells and chants while walking around the town. And eventually, with a combination of his clever logic and his louder voice, he wins the town over, right? Except none of that happened, did it? And Decapolis, he gets in the boat and he leaves immediately. And Nazareth, he walks away, heading to the surrounding villages, marveling at the lack of faith they just showed. Now, I don't like ever using the word never with the Lord, so I'll choose my language carefully and I'll say this. Chances are incredibly high that you won't ever argue, debate, protest, shout, or confront someone into being a Christian. And so what we do is this. We share the good news of Jesus Christ. We tell the whole gospel. And if they have genuine questions, answer their questions. If a real conversation continues, stay in the conversation. But if it is clear that there is a posture of unbelief, we disengage, we de-escalate, we tell them we'll pray for them and we love them and we walk away. And then we do just that. We take that person to the Lord and we pray that he'll go to work on their hearts, that he'll go to work on their behalf because he's the only one who could ever break through the impenetrable ground and the only one who can open the jar. We can't. And you guys have lived long enough. I I trust that you have enough social awareness to know when a person is asking genuine questions and they're interested and curious and when they just want to fight. If they just want to fight, don't fight. Debates on social media in all caps and in face-to-face confrontation with others are poor forms of evangelism. But trusting God to fight the battle better than we ever could Asking him to break through the wall of unbelief, asking him to do what only he can do, that's wisdom. And so we need to be faithful to share exactly what God told us to share, and then we trust him with the ability to draw people to himself. He's better at it than we are. There are a few things sadder, a few things trickier, and a few things more heartbreaking for us to encounter than unbelief. But with Jesus, thank God we have an example, we have a model to follow. As always, church, my encouragement to you is this. Let's follow Jesus. Let's walk in his ways. Let's do what he did. I'm going to close this this morning by by just having a a time of prayer. I'm just going to pray over each of you that regardless of how you came in today, that God would give you just what you need and that you would have the heart to receive it. So let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for each and every person who's here today. I thank you that they set aside the time in their life to be here, that, uh, that, that they came here, Lord, for whatever the reasons were, I pray that, that you've met them here. And I thank you for the example of Jesus Christ, how the things that he modeled for us, the things that he teaches us, the, the examples he gives us, that is a well that never runs dry. And so I pray that you'd help us who are followers of his to walk in his ways more and more. God, I thank you that you care just as deeply about the individual as you do crowds of people. God, and I pray, so I pray this morning for each person here. 
I pray for the needs, the questions, the concerns, the doubts, the wrestles, the struggles that they brought in today, and I pray that you'll speak to each of them now. Father, there's a brother or sister in Christ who's wrestling with doubt. First, Lord, I pray that they would feel your love and your acceptance and your grace wash over them, that you haven't thought anything different about them because they have that doubt. And secondly, I pray that, that, that you would use their searching for this answer to shape them more into the image of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, that you would give them the clarity and peace that they seek in your timing the way you know how. Father, there's anybody listening to my voice who has the heart posture of unbelief. God, there's nothing I can say this morning that would ever change their mind. So I pray for them. Right now, I pray that they would know they're still loved. I pray that they would know there's nothing that we want more for them than to find the hope we've found in Jesus. I pray that you would break through the walls that they've built up the way that only you can. That there's somebody in here that you're drawing to yourself now, that they're They're here seeking. Their heart is open to you, God. I I pray that you would make today their day of salvation, that they would surrender and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life, that you would save their soul in this moment so we could celebrate with them. Lastly, Lord, give us the boldness to share what you've told us to share. Give us the burden for those who need Jesus Christ and do not have him and give us wisdom through your Holy Spirit to know when to engage and when to disengage and commit faithfully to prayer. If there are any other needs that I haven't addressed, meet them in your grace this morning the way that only you can. Thank you for the example you said. We love you, Lord, and we ask all this in Jesus' wonderful and powerful name. Amen. We're on. Check, check. Uh, I was sitting in the back, and I realized while I was sitting there that there's like half of this room I don't know.